If you were here last week, or actually over in the Ben Scale room last week, you remember I talked about how in chapter 1, um, the writer of the Hebrews talks about how Jesus is the final word, that all that God has been saying to his people from the very beginning um, culminates with his speaking through Jesus. The final word. The exclamation point of God saying over and over and over again, I will be your God, you will be my people, I will marry myself to you. That culminates in Jesus, who is the bridegroom. That all of history is looking forward to this great wedding feast of the Lamb. Right? That's the whole theme of the Bible from beginning to end. And then I talked about how Jesus does more than just speak. He also purged our sins by his sacrifice on the cross. And after he did that, he sat down to show that he did everything necessary to secure the smile of God for those who put their trust in him. And then the writer of Hebrews at the very end of chapter 1, and that links us to this section. Because one of the challenges of the book of Hebrews is everything links together. If you stop at the end of chapter 1, look at how chapter 2 starts, first verse, therefore. So you get a therefore, you're like, oh, that's a conclusion of something. There's really no way to break up the letter to the Hebrews into chapter segments without cutting off connections, all right? So where he ended last week was with this idea that the angels which were something that the first century Greek-speaking Hebrews were tempted to worship, that these angels are not better than Jesus. And he begins to talk about that, and he actually teaches us how to use Scripture. The writer quotes numerous passages from the Old Testament saying, look, did God ever say to the angels, set at my right hand until I make all of your enemies a footstool for your feet? And I said that the way you connect to that, because I don't know if you're tempted to worship angels, probably not many of you are, though if you saw one, you might be. But for most of us, that's not really the thing that we think is better than Jesus. But there are a lot of things that we're tempted to think are better than Jesus, whether it be good grades, you know, a good job, satisfaction in your relationships, in your work, in your craft, your ability to get people to like you, your ability to get everything just right, to never forget anything, just be, always be on top of it. Whatever it is that you think is more reliable and better than Jesus, the thing that consoles you when you're really sad, the thing that makes you get up in the morning and be excited about the new day, if it's not Jesus, then it's something that is serving as a God substitute, what the Bible calls an idol. And what the writer of the Hebrews says is Jesus is better than all that stuff. Doesn't mean that that stuff is bad. Here's the tricky thing about idols. We make idols out of good things that God has created, but we make idols out of them when instead of thanking the giver of the gift, God himself, we thank, we thank and put all of our hope in the gift itself. When you separate the gift from the giver of the gift, it becomes a God substitute rather than a way to increase your belief in the goodness of God. God is a father who gives good gifts. You remember Jesus one time was talking about this, about how the father is not someone who when you ask for a loaf of bread, he gives you a snake, right? 
He's a good father. He's a good father. So now the writer of Hebrews is picking up on that idea about how Jesus is superior to the angels, or as we could say in our day and age, superior to everything that vies for your heart's affection. And this is where we go in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Follow along with me as I read. Therefore, if Jesus is superior to the angels in every way, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels, and that's a reference to a Jewish tradition that the angels were who God used to deliver the law to Moses. The Old Testament is silent about this, but there's no reason to think that this couldn't be a true and accurate tradition that was preserved alongside of Scripture. That's what he's referring to. If the angels delivered the law, the message, this law, the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This great salvation was declared at first by the Lord, and whenever the New Testament says the Lord, he doesn't mean, doesn't mean the Father. We tend to pray in our day and age like, Lord, and we mean we're usually talking to the Father. But in the New Testament, whenever it, ever it says the Lord, it's a reference to Jesus himself. Okay? That's helpful in, in a number of places, but it's helpful right here. So it's saying this salvation, this great salvation, was announced by Jesus, the Lord, and it was attested to us, the writer of Hebrews included, by those who heard, meaning the apostles. While God also bore witness to this message and to the apostles as his spokesmen by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. I love that verse six. If you're one, somebody who's like, you know, I know that's in the Bible somewhere, but I feel really unspiritual if I don't know the chapter and the verse. The book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 6, if you remember that, the writer of Scripture says, somebody somewhere said. That's how the old King James translates it. As a matter of fact, the verse markings were not even put into an English Bible until the Geneva Bible in the 1500s, for what it's worth. So, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and this is actually Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, this is key right here, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, meaning Jesus. But we see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned now with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies, that means set apart, and those who are sanctified all have one source, namely God. 
That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, and again quoting the Old Testament, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, another quote, behold, I and the children God has given me. So regularly, over and over, Jesus identifies with his people. He says, I'm the one who's in the midst of the congregation singing with them, even while they're singing to me. This is the mystery of the Trinity at work. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subjected to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now there's a lot there. And some of it is going to link to the next section, because the very next section talks about fixing our eye on Jesus. And this, again, connects. Who is the Jesus we fix our eye on? So if we don't cover all the last few verses, don't worry. It connects in to the next section we're going to talk about. But let's pray and then dig into to what we've read here. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the beautiful pictures we have of who Jesus is. And we pray that you might use it even now through the foolishness of preaching, to comfort the disturbed and to disturb the comfortable. And may it begin with me. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the writer of Hebrews starts out saying, if Jesus is superior to the angels, what does that mean? Well, it means we better listen to what he said. If the message delivered by the angels, the law, the Ten Commandments, and all that other stuff, if that was if that was reliable, and if breaking that law brought judgment, then how much more should we listen to the great salvation that was announced by Jesus himself, that was attested to by those who heard him in person? How shall we, how shall we neglect such a salvation. We must pay attention. I'll just say a couple things about this. We mustn't neglect the good news. Here, as, as all over the place in the Bible, when the Bible talks about the gospel, it's news of something that's happened. That word gospel, it's actually not a religious word in the first century. It's a word that refers to a great victory, military victory, that will change the life situation of those who hear it. That's why it was a great word for the New Testament writers to grab a hold of. They didn't just speak in like Christianese or religious language, though there's some of that here, like propitiation. That's definitely like an Old Testament kind of background word. But they also use words like gospel. And, and, it, and it refers to Something that's happened. As I said last week, Christianity is about events that happened. And the teaching of Christianity helps explain the significance 
of the actions, but the events are key. Christianity is ultimately news about a bloody cross and an empty tomb. And if those things are not true, then it's worthless. It really is. And the New Testament writers are willing to make it that bold. It's worthless if the news isn't true. We mustn't neglect the gospel, the good news announced by Jesus, because it is the final word. It's the word that everything was culminating and pointing to. Don't neglect it. This is going to be a major theme in Hebrews as we go through this, because the people that are receiving this letter are about to face pretty intense persecution. Later in the letter, it'll spell this out. And their temptation is to say, you know, if we go back to just being Jewish, then we'll be officially protected. Because under Roman law, Judaism was an allowable, protected religion. Christianity was not. So as the persecution is getting closer, for a lot of these people are like, you know, God spoke into, the, into Judaism, so that's pretty good. We can just kind of go back to that word. And the writer of Hebrews says, no. Like God's speaking has now culminated here, and you need to meet him where he is, not where he was. We'll talk more about that as we go through Hebrews. But we mustn't neglect the gospel, and we mustn't be uninformed, uninformed about how the gospel was delivered to us. This is actually a very important passage. There's a lot of people, I think, that could be helped by what Paul, or what the writer to the Hebrews, sorry, is saying here. I know it wasn't Paul. You know how we know Paul didn't write this letter? Um, we know Paul didn't write this letter because he never would have regarded himself as a second generation guy. He goes out of his way to say that, for instance, in the letter to the Galatians and other places. The Galatians, one of the earliest letters he wrote. So this writer to the Hebrews is somebody who was in the Pauline circle because from the earliest church history, this letter is always associated with the Pauline circle, but it was not Paul himself because the writer says, I was not one of the eyewitnesses. I was somebody who believed because of their testimony. And God, God attested to these apostles as spokesmen for me by signs and wonders. Now, in our day and age, there's a lot of people that talk about signs and wonders without keeping it anchored to what the Bible says the purpose of them was. And I'm not out here today to, like, upset people, but I do want to point out that regularly the Bible connects these signs and wonders as having a particular purpose, not just to show off, not just to show that God is powerful, but to attest to those who are his spokesmen. As a matter of fact, B.B. Warfield, great um, theologian at Princeton Seminary, wrote a book about a hundred years ago pointing this out, that if you go through the Bible carefully, the signs and wonders, the miracles, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, always congregate around times of new revelation. They don't just show up willy-nilly. They're not evenly distributed all through the chronology of Scripture, as a matter of fact. They congregate around times of revelation, and function for the most part to authenticate those who would claim to speak on God's behalf. Because it is a big deal. Who can speak on God's behalf? 
And God says, I'm going to give signs and wonders to attest so that you will know. We mustn't be naive about that. So, application. Last week we looked at glorious truths, right? That God speaks. And as I said, the fact that the Bible goes on after Genesis chapter 3 and after Genesis 4 and after Genesis 5 is evidence of God's great long-suffering, his great patience. Because every time he speaks, we don't listen. And then he speaks again. I don't know about you. I don't know how many times, you know, you speak or how many times your parents speak before they just decide to quit speaking and maybe move on to other uh, ways of communicating. But God continues to speak, continues to speak. We need to pay attention. God says, you can't ignore me forever. But how can Jesus be really better than the angels? Now, again, angels may not be your thing, but I guarantee you, whatever it is that you're tempted to think is better than Jesus, there are things about Jesus that make you wonder if he really is good. Don't you think? Now, they may be different for you than your grandparents. And they may be different from you than people that come from other cultural backgrounds. This is actually one of these really interesting things. Every culture and every time period has certain beliefs. We call them defeater beliefs. A defeater belief is a belief that if you hold to it, then another truth claim cannot possibly be true. I'll give you an example. If I tell you that when I woke up this morning, I looked out in my backyard, some of you were at my backyard last night, but this morning when I looked out in my backyard, there was a fire-breathing dragon right there in my backyard. Now, there's nobody that's going to ask me questions about that. Like, are you sure? What color was it? How big was it? Why? Because you have a defeater belief. You don't believe in fire-breathing dragons. And so it doesn't matter about my testimony. It doesn't matter about my truth claim. It doesn't matter how much it affected me and how fired up I get about it, no pun intended. But <laughs> you don't believe it, okay? And here's the thing. There are things that you think can't possibly be true that are kind of the exact opposite of what people in the Bible times thought were true. For instance, most Western folks under 25, under 30 maybe we'd even say, particularly white middle class people, really don't like the idea that God is a judge. It's one of the chief things that makes us wonder whether Christianity could be true, because we just hate this idea that God would judge anybody. But you know what? For most of the history of the world, if you don't have a God who is going to make all things right, then that is itself a defeater belief. How can you proclaim a religion and a God who won't judge evil and make things right? Now, who's wrong? The people the Bible was written to said, of course God is a judge. As a matter of fact, Psalm 97 says, Zion rejoices in your judgments, O Lord. When we read that kind of verse, we're like, oh, we're a little embarrassed that the Psalms say that. Gosh, I wish that wasn't in there. But people in the Bible times would have looked at us and said, really? Like, why would we even believe in a God who doesn't have the power and the zeal to make all things right one day? The only people that rejoice in a God who doesn't judge anybody are the people that think they've got it all together and they're reigning and they're ruling. And they want the status quo to stay this way forever. So these defeater beliefs are different. But everybody has them. 
And it is actually worth pondering the things that make you wonder whether Jesus could be true may be more culturally relative than you realize. It is worth at least questioning that. All right. When you get to the book of Hebrews, there's a couple things that threaten the belief that Jesus is superior to the angels. And here they are. The first is, Scripture says that he was made lower than the angels. So how can he be superior? Psalm 8 in the Bible says that he was made lower than the angels. That's objection number one. And objection number two, he died. We all know he died. How can he be superior if he died? None of the angels ever died, but Jesus died. We know about it. So what do we say? Well, the first. The first requires a little bit of Greek and Hebrew. And I, I, I don't like to do this too much because I'll lose everybody here. But there's a Hebrew word, Elohim. And it actually can mean heavenly beings or God. It's one of the names for God that the, New, the Old Testament uses. But it also, that heme ending is a plural Hebrew ending. And it can refer to heavenly beings. So the Hebrew of Psalm 8, which is what Psalm 8 was originally written in, says Elohim. You made him, meaning mankind, to be a little lower than Elohim. Does that mean a little lower than the angels or a little lower than God? The Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, which is what these Hebrews were using in the first century, goes for angels. You don't have the ambiguity in Greek that you do in Hebrew. So the Greek translation says angels. But here's the thing. The Hebrew is really better understood to be a reference to God himself. Because the point of Psalm 8, and maybe, maybe you've read Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is like, you know, oh Lord, how Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, right? And you might know that part. Sometimes we sing psalms, we sing part of the psalms without singing the whole psalms. But where it goes on is like, when I look at the stars and when I look at the whole creation, what do you feel when you look at the whole creation? You look up at the stars. You feel small, don't you? The writer of Psalm 8 actually says just the opposite. When I look up at the stars, I say, oh my gosh, that God, even though you've made the stars and the heavens, who is mankind that you would put the crown on his head? Now, why does the writer of Psalm 8 say that? Because he's actually using the creation account from Genesis to determine how he looks at the universe. He's not just looking at the universe and says, this is what I feel. He's saying, no, Scripture tells me that God created mankind, the crown of creation. And when I look out at the universe, even if I may feel small, I know that your word says that I'm more valuable, more important to you than all the vast creation. Praise you, Lord. Who are you? Who is a God like you? So that's what's going on here in Psalm 8. God made man not lower than the angels, higher than the angels, lower than God himself, Elohim. And while God created mankind to be his stewards and to rule over creation on his behalf, bringing out all the God-glorifying potential that God built into this creation, taking the cultivated part of the world, the garden, and extending it, Throughout all the reaches of the cosmos, that's why mankind was made. 
But mankind didn't do that, did they? Mankind said, no, I know God has limited how I'm to use the creation. For instance, he says, don't eat of that tree, no matter how good it looks. God was saying, if you will rule as my steward, you will rule as I direct you, not as you want to do, for your own selfish desires. And mankind said, no, thank you, we will rule according to our own selfish desires. But here's the thing. God did not come up with a plan B and say, okay, I guess mankind will no longer rule over my creation. No. Instead, he sent Jesus so that this story would have a happy ending. Romans chapter 8 talks about this, about how the creation is groaning. And you know what it's waiting for? The liberty, the freedom of the sons of God when they come into the full enjoyment of what it means to bask in God's smile. Then all things will be made right because the order of God's stewards, mankind, graciously caring for creation the way he intended will be restored and all things will be made right. You see, the Bible story is a creation story. The salvation story actually fits in to the context of the creation story. This is why God is interested in more than just souls. He's interested in restoring what the Hebrews called shalom, the rightness of all things, and that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about that. Well, how can Jesus be superior to the angels if he died? That's the second objection. And here's what the writer says. His dying actually shows that he's better. Turns this objection upside down. Upside down. Jesus died, yes. Hold on. I forgot one important thing. Verse 8 and 9. This creation story where are we at in this creation bringing all things to their culmination, their glorious conclusion? Where are we at in that? Well, we're, we're in this place that verse 8 and 9 talk about. It says that, that everything has been put under subjection under his feet. Look at verse 8. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, which has happened, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. This is a really important point. There's a lot of people, a lot of Christian churches that teach that Satan is Lord of this earth right now until Jesus comes back again. That's not the view of the book of Hebrews at all. Do you see what it says? It says right now everything is in subjection to him. Everything. There's nothing that's outside of his control. Satan has no authority over this world. He is not the Lord of this earth. He's not the Lord of hell either, by the way. All the pop culture that makes it seem like that's his place, his domain, is not true. It's a place of punishment for him and all those who align themselves with him. But what do we see? We don't see everything in subjection to him. But it is in subjection to him. He's not waiting for his millennial kingdom before he actually becomes Lord. He is Lord now, and everything is under subjection to him, but you don't see it. This is what we call the already and the not yet. Already, all things are in subjection to him, but not yet do we see it. And it is the historic Christian way to understand the life that we live right now that's full of brokenness, but a place where we can trust God because there is more 
at work than what we see. I was thinking about this great hymn, It Is Well. Do you know that, that hymn, It Is Well? See, this is a great example. It is well with my soul right now because of what Jesus has done and because of God's ability to be with his people in the midst of great sorrow. But, Lord, haste the day when the faith, my faith will be what? Sight. That's Hebrews 2, 8 and 9. Already it is well, but not yet do we see everything. It's what we sang about in that last verse of Jesus, I'm across the taken, right? Faith to sight and prayer to praise. That's what we long for. Everything now is broken. It is. Look around. Dylan, the great prophet, had it right. Everything is broken. But there's more to reality than what we see, right? Hebrews calls us to look beyond appearances. It says Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father because after he purged our sins, he sat down. And I know it looks like Rome is all-powerful. It looks like they have all the power, but that's not true. This is actually what the book of Revelation is about, too, by the way. It's the unveiling. It's open your eyes to see the things the first chapter says are soon to take place. If you think the book of Revelation is a book primarily about the 21st century, you've missed the point. It's about open your eyes to see the invisible realities that are going on right now that it comfort Christians being persecuted in the first century, the second century, the third century, and even now. So we live in this already not yet tension. All right. Now, Jesus died. Jesus died. And he had to be human. His humanity, his death is not a weakness. It's actually a strength. Even though it may seem like taking on human flesh and being crucified proves that you're lower than the angels, it's not true at all. Now, why might they think that? Well, these are Hebrew uh, Christians who are heavily influenced by Greek philosophy. Um, those who've studied the Greek in the book of Hebrews point out numerous places where it references a certain kind of early Hebrew thought that was very influenced by Greek philosophy. One of the things that Greek philosophy is known for, one of the key tenets, is that physical flesh is bad that you have this pure kind of soul that needs to be set free from your earth suit. It's what we call Gnosticism. This kind of spiritual idea is plaguing them. And so the idea that Jesus would take on flesh seems to be crazy. How could he be better than the angels who have no flesh? They're pure spirit beings, so of course they're better. That's not true. Even though at times you might wonder, boy, I wish I didn't have a body at all, <laughs> things would be better. My body breaks down, it plagues me, it pains me, it frustrates me. Well, we're looking forward to renewed, glorified bodies. The Bible never shies away from that. And the writer of the Hebrew says, what you think of as a weakness actually is a strength. It was for Jesus, and it actually is for God's people too. See, the incarnation teaches this. God does not love from a distance. God does not love from long distance. He doesn't just shout from heaven. He doesn't just send a letter. He comes and he takes on human flesh. You know why Jesus was called the man of sorrows? 
You know how much it breaks your heart to walk around and see the brokenness of this world? Imagine what it was like to be the one who created all of this and beautiful, to walk around, to rub shoulders with the brokenness that had come to his creation. And how incredible that rather than look at that brokenness and say, I made a beautiful creation and you guys have screwed it up so royally to heck with all of you. No, instead he says, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to be undeterred. Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. I will die in the place of traitors and rebels and fools. The incarnation teaches God does not love from a distance. Jesus Jesus is the way God has experienced suffering. I'm going to close with this, and then we'll pick up some more on this next week. There was a, um, a Presbyterian minister, Scottish Presbyterian minister, who was at work uh, in World War I. He was in the trenches. So it's really un- unimaginable to think of what that was like. It is interesting how many great writers endured that. You know, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis both fought in the trenches in World War I and it shaped both of their views of evil and also courage. Well, this guy, Edward Shalito, Shalito, not sure how you pronounce his name, wrote this poem right after World War I. It's so beautiful about understanding what is unique about Christianity. I put it down here. It's called Jesus of the Scars. If we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the scars. The heavens frighten us, they are too calm. In all the universe we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us. Where is the balm? Lord Jesus, by the scars we claim thy grace. And then look at verse 4. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. See, what so many people think of as the ultimate weakness, that Jesus could die is actually what makes him glorious. That he could condescend, that he could become like us, that he could suffer in being tempted, that he could be made perfect through suffering. To me, this verse that says it's fitting that the author of our salvation would be made perfect through suffering is one of those verses that just gags me in the throat. Fitting? Fitting? How can that be fitting? He did nothing wrong. Why is it fitting that he would have to suffer? That he would even grow more perfect, more complete, you could say, through suffering for us? It's a great mystery. It's a great mystery. If it ever ceases to amaze us, then we're in deep weeds, up that proverbial creek with no paddle, right? No God has scars, but thou alone. And you need a God with scars. 
Even though you may be tempted and I may be tempted to think that the things that are powerful and make me feel powerful are what I really need, what I really need is one who is made like us in every way, who has suffered, been tempted in every way, who knows what it's like to weep, to be wounded, to be betrayed. There's nothing that we suffer that he hasn't suffered. Therefore, he's able to help all of those who are tempted. We're going to dig into this some more next week. Let's pray.